Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, can I add my uh, expressed joy to be back in the building with you all? I've missed you. It's so good to be together. You're looking better than ever. And uh, I know that there's a real sense in here of hunger for the Lord and a real joy to be back. Um, the clocks have gone forward. It's going to be 21 degrees on Tuesday. Yeah, come on. The sun's going to be shining all day. And the rule of six is back tomorrow, which feels like progress. I'm celebrating progress today. And we've made it all the way to the end of the book of Exodus, 40 chapters. Well done, everybody. Uh, we're going to dive straight into uh, the last chapter, the last bit of the last chapter of Exodus, which is where we're parking up today as we finish um, our series. So if you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it, uh, or if you've got a phone, switch your phone on. And I'm going to read, um, I'm going to skip through, I'm going to skim read um, from verses uh, 18 to the end, um, kind of slowing down towards the end of the chapter, because this is a bit of a climactic moment. You know, uh, Exodus doesn't sort of dwindle out and fade away. There's a climax at the end as uh, the tabernacle becomes established uh, in all its glory. So we're going to be talking about this morning, walking in power. That's our subject for this morning, walking in power, which is always, I think, a fantastic thing to be talking about. I wonder if you could do with more of God's power in your life today. I know I could. You know, I know I'm desperate for more of the power of God in my life. I wonder if that's you, uh, because this is a passage that's going to help us uh, dig a bit deeper into how we can walk in power. So here we go. Verse 18. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he did all these kind of things. And I'm going to skim through what he did. God didn't give him some kind of brief IKEA set of instructions with pictures and a few simple details. Actually, it was hugely complicated. We've read a lot of the, uh, the book of Exodus is full of complicated instructions. But here's this climactic moment. Moses set it up and he put the bases in place. He erected the frames. He inserted the crossbars. He set up the posts. He spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over it as the Lord commanded him. Just watch out for that little phrase. It comes up a lot of times. He took the tablets of the covenant law and placed them in the ark. He attached the poles to the ark and put the cover over it. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle and hung the shielding curtain that then shielded the ark of the covenant law as the Lord commanded him. Verse 22, he then placed the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the curtain and he set the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded him. He placed the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as God had commanded him. Moses was very busy in this chapter. <laughs> he placed the gold altar in the tent of meeting in front of the curtain and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord commanded him. Then he put up the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering near the entrance to the tabernacle to the tent of meeting and offered on it burnt offerings and grain offer offerings as the Lord commanded him. He placed the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing. And then Moses and Aaron used it to, to wash their feet. And then they washed whenever they entered the tent of meeting, as the Lord commanded them. And then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. I bet he was relieved. I bet there was a huge sigh of relief. He needed a good old cup of tea and a rest. <laughs> Then the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord 
filled the tabernacle. Look, it's written twice. Whoever's writing this is wanting to emphasize this is the key point. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I think if this moment, if this was being set to music, you know, if, this, if we were watching a movie here, I think this would be like a huge crescendo. The instruments would be going all out at this dramatic moment. This is the drama of the glory of God, the manifest presence of the invisible God coming down from heaven like a burning light, like a shining bright light so that people could see that God was with them. And then in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out. But if the cloud didn't lift, they didn't set out until it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and I would want to say, and in it, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites. Do you know, this is an incredible moment for the people of God. Because no longer is God up the mountain which is where he'd been in Exodus 19, where Moses had to go. He'd come down. He'd come down in his power and in his presence and in his goodness to fill the Holy of Holies, that inner part of the tabernacle. Do you know there was no light in the Holy of Holies? There were no windows. There was no way that natural light could get in there. But the Bible tells us that when the high priest went in there once a year, he could see And the reason the priest could see was because this glory of God, this manifest presence of God was like a shining bright light. And so powerful was this sense of God's presence. The the Hebrew word for glory has a sense of weightiness and thickness about it. It's kind of describing somebody's worth, somebody's value, somebody's impressiveness. And so thick was the weight of this cloud, so dense was it that Moses couldn't get in there. Moses couldn't get into the the Holy of Holies, into the tent, because God was in there. Amazing, amazing thing. And an epic, unforgettable moment in the history of people of God, uh, the people of God, that no longer was he out of reach at the top of a mountain. He'd come down and positioned himself right in their midst. But what relevance does this story, this historical account of what happened 4,000 years ago, what relevance does it have to us 4,000 years later? Well, firstly, it tells us or it reminds us, doesn't it, about the heart of God. Because God's heart for his people never changes. We know that he's an unchanging God. Why did he come? And fill this inner part of the tabernacle. Why did he put his glory and and bring his presence into that place where where people, the Israelites, could see him represented by this cloud, could see his manifest presence? Why did he do it? Because his desire has always been to be with his people. His desire has always been to be with his kids, to live in the midst of us, to live amongst us, to be close to us, to enjoy us, to help us, to demonstrate his love for us. That's where the whole story started in Eden, wasn't it? God with Adam and Eve, with them in the garden. And his heart has never changed. That's his heart for you today. That's his heart for us as a community of believers in Trinity Cheltenham. That's his heart for us, his church in the UK. He longs to be close to you. He longs to be near you. He longs to walk with you. He longs you to know that he loves you, 
and is for you and wants to help you, no matter how hard we make it for him sometimes. 4,000 years ago, his presence had to come down like this into this inner place in the tabernacle where it was restricted. There were all kinds of rules about who could, who could get near, what, what parts of the temple people could walk into. And it was, there were these restrictions because nobody could walk into the presence of God. Nobody could stand in front of him face to face and live. If you walked into the presence of God, you had to die. When the high priest went in once a year, he had a rope attached around his waist in case he died because he hadn't made the right sacrifices for his sin and then somebody could pull him out. The Israelites couldn't get too close to God because it was dangerous. Their sin had made them flammable. It's not that God wants to destroy us. It's that he's so burning and pure and bright in his goodness. We are flammable because of our sin. So God had to establish a load of protections to protect the people, but he wanted the people to know that he was with them and he wanted to be near them. So that's what the tabernacle represented. But we know, don't we, that we live this side of the cross. You know, we live this side of Jesus' sacrifice. And his sacrifice, as we know, his blood poured out, dealt with our problem of sin, our flammability, as it were. And so if we've accepted his forgiveness and if, we, if we've been cleansed by his blood, his blood has dealt with our flammability. So there's no longer a problem for God to be wary of. God doesn't need to keep his distance from us because he's, he's not going to sort of consume us because the blood of Jesus has consumed our sin on the cross. And so no longer does he need to fill a physical space with rules around it so that people can't get too close to God, he now comes to fill a human heart. He comes to fill the human heart. That was his plan all along. That's why he calls you the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that's what you're called? If you've received his forgiveness, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. His presence is in you. And that's what happened, isn't it, at Pentecost? You know, that fantastic story in Acts 2 that we always read again on, you know, Pentecost Sunday and hopefully on all kinds of other Sundays during the year. You know, we read this dramatic story, don't we, of the Holy Spirit coming down and filling that first bunch of disciples. And people saw what, what uh, seemed to be tongues of fire and they heard this kind of rushing wind and these people spoke in tongues and other people heard them speaking the praises of God. It was the same thing being repeated, but in a different way, an upgraded way. The presence of God, the glory of God, the power of God coming and filling his people in their hearts. And there was a manifestation of his presence so that people could see the uh, people could see a manifestation of the invisible god that he was there that he was with them that he was amongst them that he was for them and that he was going to work through them isn't it exciting that we live this side of the cross that we don't have to go to a temple that we are the temple that the presence of god isn't over there somewhere but he's in us and he's amongst us and of course, we know that infilling of the Holy Spirit that began on uh, Pentecost Sunday. Uh, you know, it's an, it's an essential experience for every one of us to have, but it's not meant to be a one-off experience, is it? Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we're to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Because like my phone battery, <laughs> I leak. You know, my phone needs plugging in regularly if my phone is going to function properly. 
We need plugging in regularly to the power and the presence of God. He needs to come and keep filling us to live the life that he's called us to. So this passage reminds us about the heart of God. It also reminds us about the intention of God, doesn't it? It reminds us that he intends for his people to be marked out by his presence. That was the way people were going to identify. Oh, look, that lot over there, they're God's people. How, do, how, how, would they, how were they meant to know that? Because God was with them. His presence was with them. They could see that God was with them. And of course, that's true in so many stories in the Old Testament, isn't it? And his power and presence are meant to mark us out as the people of God, the people around us, our community, our friends, our family. They're meant to look at us and go, oh my goodness, God's with you. I can see God's with you because of what's happening in your life or because of what you're doing in other people's lives. I can see that God is with you. That's God's design for us. He never intended us to live separately from his presence. That was, the, that was the, the disaster, the catastrophe of Eden, wasn't it? That Adam and Eve separated themselves from God's presence. And the cloud of his presence, the, the flip side of that, he, the, the presence is meant to mark us out, but it also is what enables us to live in the way that he's called us to live, isn't it? The presence guided them. The cloud lifted, they moved on. The cloud, you know, settled again and the Israelites stopped. They weren't in control of what happened. They responded to the presence and power of God. The cloud guided them. It protected them. You know, the, the Old Testament is full of battles. And when the presence of God was in their midst, well, they were successful. They were successful against the wiles of the enemy. They defeated the purposes and plans of men and the evil one in the world. The cloud, his presence protected them and gave them victory. That's why Jesus could say to us that, that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church on this earth, no matter what culture we live in, no matter what's going on in the world. Why? Because we've got the presence and power of God with us. They're what, they're what mark us out as his people, and we need his presence to live the life that he's called us to. I don't know what kind of stuff you've been watching during lockdown. Maybe you can't remember. We can't remember what we started watching a few years ago, how many box sets you've plowed through or what your Netflix favorite series are. We've gone back to a series called 24. I don't know if that's, any of you have watched that. But, uh, you know, we were getting a bit low on adrenaline, you know, come February, March, super weary. And uh, 24, for those of you that haven't seen it, is a, is a series of, uh, about Jack Bauer, this kind of superhero that, you know, saves the world every episode virtually, you know, saves all kinds of people, saves nations. He's a counter-terrorist, operative, and uh, it's 45 minutes of adrenaline, you know, every episode. So, if you, you know, if you're feeling like you need a bit of excitement in your life until we can get back to, you know, full-blown you know, check out 24. We, we were watching one episode and Tim sat the whole episode on the front of the sofa like this. And I said to him, I said, hon, you don't look very relaxed. He said, I'm not. <laughs> anyway, one of the things that Jack Bauer says to all these people that he meets that, you know, he's trying to help rather than defeat. He often says to them in his kind of low American husky and to be honest, rather annoying voice. He says, um, I give you my word. You know, I give you my word. He says it over and over again. And uh, it, he says it so often, I sort of I found myself reflecting on it recently. Sad person that I am. <laughs> and thinking, he's so confident. This guy is so, Jack Bat is so confident. And he expects everybody else to be so confident that if he says something, he's going to do it. And the reason he's so confident that he can deliver on what he says is because of power. 
the power that is available to him, the power of his training, the power of his experience, uh, the power of the weapons that he has access to from CTU, and the power of um, all the intelligence operatives, you know, the, the amazing techie stuff, and uh, the armed forces on the ground. He's got power to back up his word so that he knows that if he says something, he can deliver on it. And do you know what? It's the power and the presence of God that he gives us so that we can fulfill his word to us. We need his power and his presence to live the life that we've called us to. And when we depart from depending on his power and his presence, we end up in trouble. Let me remind you. Here are just a few reminders from Matthew's gospel of uh, things that Jesus has said to us. He says, heal the sick. Raise the dead. Freely you've received, freely give. Cleanse those who've got leprosy. Drive out demons. It's kind of not every Sunday afternoon activity, is it? Preach the gospel. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. How do we feel about that? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other one. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you and are super mean to you because of your faith. How about this one? Don't worry about your life. I haven't mastered that one yet, have you? Forgive your brother or sister 77 times. And if you've mastered all of those, how about this one? Rejoice in every circumstance. I don't know about you, but I need power. I need the presence of God to get anywhere close to living the life that he's called me to. We need empowering, don't we? Even the disciples did. They'd spent three years with him. They'd been taught by the master teacher about the father, about the kingdom, about how to live the way God planned for them to live. But the last thing Jesus said to them was stay in Jerusalem until this power, until my presence, until my Holy Spirit comes and fill you so that you can live the life I've taught you about. And if they needed it, how much more do we? Because they knew far more than we did. They'd watched Jesus. They'd lived with Jesus. They'd sat at his feet. But knowing wasn't enough. I can know about phones. I can know about how they work. I can know about all the best apps. I can have masses of memory storage. I can, you know, I, I can be in a position where I don't need Jamie Lewis to help me anymore. But I still need power for my phone to work. It's the same with you and me. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, says Paul. It's a matter of power. And when, we, when we're not living from a place of power and a place of presence, guess what? We end up doing a lot of talking and it doesn't change very much. The kingdom of God is a matter of talk, not a matter of talk, a matter of power. Maybe it's a good, good moment to ask ourselves a couple of questions. To what extent... Do I expect to see God's power working in my life? To what extent do I expect to see God's power working through me? What am I aiming for? What am I aiming to do? How am I aiming to live in a way that if God's power doesn't show up, I'm going to fail? Do I need Do I need more of his power in my life? I think they're good questions to come back to. Because they keep us on track in discerning, are we living from that place of needing and knowing the presence and power of God? 
or has, you know, have our batteries run out and we've just got used to it. We've learned to accept it and we've learned to live with it and make excuses for the fact that actually God's power and presence isn't at work in the way in us and through us in the way that he wants it to. Wants it to. Now, obviously, the Bible makes it clear that there are all kinds of things that we need to do to walk in his power, to walk in step with the Spirit who is the power and the presence of God living within us. It makes it clear that there's all kinds of things we need to do, but I want to home, on, home in on one in these last few moments uh, because I think it's a real key that we often overlook and often ignore, and that is this. We are to welcome weakness. We are to embrace weakness. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, you'll be familiar with this. Listen to what he says. My power, this, he's quoting God, speaking to him. My power is made perfect in weakness. Don't you love that? And then he says, therefore, I'm going to go on and gladly boast about my weaknesses. Now, we're used to people boasting about their achievements, their successes, their social media followers, you know, whatever else, their salary, whatever. But Paul rates boasting about weakness. I wonder how many people you know who actually boast about their weakness to you. But Paul says, I boast about my weakness. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. And that Greek word for may rest is the word for tabernacle. And what it's saying is, I will boast in my weakness because it's in my weakness that God's power can tabernacle, can fill, can be made room for in me. It's my weaknesses that make room for the presence and the power of God. Don't you think that's amazing? When I'm weak, when I embrace my weakness, and when I go, okay, this is who I am, this is what I can't do, God gets room to move. His power gets room to move. We make room for his presence. And it's a principle, isn't it, that's, you know, we see in the Bible over and over again. You know, what happened to Gideon? He had an army, and God says, no, 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 whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down until he's only got 300 men left. He wanted Gideon to be in a position of weakness. Why? So he could show up with his strength and do way more than Gideon could ever do with his army. You know, we've been reading about Moses. Moses tried, Moses had a heart to set the Israelites free from the oppression of Egypt. So he tried in his own strength and murdered an Egyptian. And God's like, no, you're not ready, Moses, because you're still living in your own strength. So Moses totters off to the wilderness for 40 years. And when he's old and when he's got not much left to offer and all he's been doing for 40 years is, is you know, leading sheep, guess what? God's going, God goes, yep, you're ready, Moses. You're weak. You haven't got much to offer in your own strength, so I'm choosing you. And I'm going to use you to lead a million Israelites out of Egypt. You know, we've been talking about Palm Sunday, Jesus going to the cross. Jesus modeled living in weakness, didn't he? He chose a donkey on Palm Sunday to ride into Jerusalem, not a horse. He didn't come with a sword. He came to lay down his life. He went to the cross in weakness. He couldn't even carry his cross on Good Friday because he was so weak. And the weakest moment, you know, that his followers observed was when he was on the cross and he looked defeated. But in that moment, as he gave up his strength and refused to call down the 72,000 angels that Matthew tells us he could have called down to save him, when he chose to persevere in weakness, 
God's power was accomplishing the greatest victory in the universe, defeating the powers and principalities of evil and destroying the, the legacy and the consequences of sin, the eternal consequences of sin. God's power finds room to work. God finds room to move in our weakness. Paul says when we are weak, then, then we are strong because we make room for the presence of God to move in us. So finally, how does it work? Well, when Paul's talking about boasting about his weaknesses, he's not kind of you know, sitting going, there going, you know, do you know what? I know that, cool, you know, I'm not very good at this. I'm, you know, I haven't learned how to rejoice in all circumstances yet. I don't, have a, I don't, I don't find it very easy to fight, forgive these people. You know, I don't have a heart to go and preach. I'm a bit fearful. He's not saying God's okay with all of that. He's not abusing grace by suggesting that God looks at his weaknesses and go, oh, I know you, Paul, you're weak. You know, I understand and I love you anyway, although he does love us anyway. He's not, you know abusing grace in that respect and pretending that God is cool with everything. And he's not hiding behind his weaknesses. He's not justifying them, going, well, this is my personality type. You know, I don't like hanging out with people. You know, I find it really hard to love people because, you know, whatever, because of my past, because of my wounds. I get really easily offended because I'm an oversensitive person. Or, you know, I can't forgive these people because you just don't know what they've done to me. Or I can't go out on the streets because I'm too afraid. Or I can't control my appetite because, you know, I've always been like this. Paul doesn't justify or hide his weaknesses. That's not what he's saying either. He isn't saying that God's power is made perfect in his sin. He's recognizing a gap. This is where I am. This is what I struggle with. This is what I can't do at the moment. This is what, you know, where I am at in my life today. And this is where God wants me to be. This is what I see in my Bible. This is how God commands me to live. And there's a gap between the two. So that gap, I'm going to own that gap. And I'm going to own the fact that I can't fill that gap with my own strength. I can't move from here to here without God's power, without his help, without his strength. And he's going, when I own that gap, well, it's a gap that God can fill. It's a gap that God can, can move in. It's a, it's a place for God's power to work. So he's saying, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses because my weaknesses are an opportunity for God. Because God can help me when I own them. God can be the part of the equation that I can't be. I had a conversation with someone a few months ago, and uh, they'd been struggling uh, with uh, repeated toxic behavior and not getting any kind of breakthrough. And there was this kind of cycle where they'd, you know, try really hard to break free and there would be a bit of freedom for a bit of time. And then they'd lapse again and go back to the old pattern. And uh, this carried on and on until they got to a point where they finally realized, where God allowed this person to finally realize, I can't do this in my own strength. So, God, I need your help and I need your power. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit showed up and said, well, you need to go and, and, and acknowledge this weakness to boast about it almost to somebody else. And this person went and confessed their weakness to somebody else. And the moment they did that, breakthrough began to happen. God's power began to move in this person's life. And actually, they found an incredible freedom. Friends, this is so countercultural, isn't it? 
It's so countercultural. We live in a culture that despises weakness, you know, that offers us all kinds of self-help. But the kingdom of God, it's an upside-down kingdom, isn't it? We belong to an upside-down kingdom. Prince Harry this week, I don't know if you saw this, but he posted this on his Instagram account. This is the wisdom, friends, of the world that we're up against all the time. Self-optimization, improving ourselves. It's not about fixing something that's broken. It's about becoming the best version of ourselves that we can. Do you know what Jesus says? The opposite. He says, Hilth, you're broken. He says, Andrew, you're broken. He says, Nikki, you're broken. Accept it. You're broken by sin. There isn't a better version of you. And there isn't a better version of me. There's either a Holy Spirit-filled version of me or a Holy Spirit-empty version of me. Those are the only kinds of people that Jesus recognizes. People filled with his presence, who are new creations, or people who aren't. So friends, if there's any part of you this morning that is trying to work harder to break free from a pattern of sin, to try to work harder to love your enemies, or to forgive somebody, or to work harder to gear yourself up to becoming a better witness, or to defeat the power of the powers of darkness in the lives of those around you or in your own life. If you're trying harder just to be really good so that Jesus, you know, will be more pleased with you, let this truth encourage you today. It's your weakness that creates space for the Holy Spirit. It's how he asks you to live, embracing it and bringing it to him to fill. And I've, you know, it's taken me such a long time to begin to get my head around this. I think I'm wired to try and pursue strength somehow. But do you know what? When I'm in touch with my gaps, when I'm in touch with my weakness, when I'm in touch with the coolness of my heart, that I don't love him the way that I want to, when I'm in touch with the fact that I don't have a heart for the lost in the way that I want to, when I'm in touch with my critical spirit, when I'm in touch with the fact that I failed my kids in the way that I didn't want to, when I'm in touch with the fact that I have a fragile prayer life, or whatever it is, that's when God can move because it drives me to my knees. When I own this gap, when I recognize it and when I own it, it drives me to my knees and I start praying, God, help me. God, come and fill this gap. Change me. I need your power. I need your presence because if you don't move, nothing's going to change. I've learned through bitter experience that I can't change myself. And friends, when we become a church on our knees, desperate to see the God of power and presence move in our lives, in our church, in our nation, when we're so convinced that we can't do it on our own, that we get on our knees and cry out to him, that's when we will see him move in power in this land. We need to embrace our weaknesses so that God has room to move. If you feel weak today, weak in the face of temptation, weak in the face of repeated sin, weak in terms of your love for the lost, weak in the, ter- in the context of your marriage, if you f- feel powerless over, I don't know, mental turmoil or anguish in your heart or whatever, if you feel weak in your workplace and how effective you're, pe- you're being, this is good news Because God wants you to own your weakness, bring it to him, and then he can inhabit it. He can move in to that place of weakness, and he can start doing something really different that you cannot do. So let's surrender again today to the truth about who we really are. Without him, we are weak. 
and with him we are strong when we own and when we celebrate our weaknesses. So why don't we stand?